0: My name is Keith Beavers, and as a Gen Xer, I'm really appreciating the new, younger bands summoning up the 90s grunge era with the new sound. I'm looking at you, Soft Cult. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Parent Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tastings director of Vine Pear. Yep! Today, we continue our tale of Bordeaux and how it rose to prominence. Before we do so, we have to go all the way north, out of France, into the Netherlands. What is that? In the southeastern Swiss Alps, there is a canton named Graubünden, And in that canton begins one of the most important rivers of Europe, the Rhine River. The second largest river in Central Europe after the Danube. Oh, the mighty Danube. We were going to have to talk about that at some point. But as this Rhine River plunges down the Alps and starts heading kind of west-north-west, it begins to form borders of modern-day Europe. It forms part of the swiss Liechtenstein, Swiss-Austrian, and Swiss-German borders. Beyond this, it begins to outline much of the Franco-German border, and then it flows north through West Germany, called the Rhineland, which is a wine place we have to talk about at some point. And finally... In Germany, it heads true west, towards the North Sea, but before that, it has to go through the Netherlands. The Netherlands is a small-ish Western European country, and its borders are Germany to the east, Belgium to the south, and the North Sea is its coastline, which sits in the north and western border of the country. It also shares maritime borders with the UK, Germany, and Belgium. Its capital is Amsterdam, and Rotterdam, another major city, is home to Europe's largest port. The name or the word Netherlands means lower countries, and that's in reference to the extreme low elevation and flat topography of this entire country which is about 26% falling below sea level. And before the 15th century, that percentage was a lot higher. What the people of this country did around that time is they did something called land reclamation, where they actually gained land that was underwater by using windmills to pump water out of areas to create what are called polders, P-O-L-D-E-R-S, which really just translates to a piece of land elevated above its surroundings. That's literally what the the word means. (laughs) And the people of this country spoke a language called Dutch. This is Dutch country. Now, the thing with the Netherlands is a little bit confusing in the modern times is that we know the word Holland, and sometimes we confuse Holland with the Netherlands, and it makes sense because two of the main provinces of the 12 provinces of the Netherlands are called Holland. There's North Holland and there's South Holland. And this is right, these provinces are right on the ocean. They're extremely important. And because of their historical importance and because Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and the seat of government, The Hague, is in Holland County, which encompasses the north and south provinces of Holland, up until 2020, it was common to call the Netherlands Holland or Holland, the Netherlands. It was interchangeable, everyone was okay with it, except for the outlying 10 or so other provinces that were like, wait a second, why Why are we doing this? So in 2020, the Netherlands officially dropped its support for the word Holland and redesigned their logo from Holland to NL to represent the Netherlands. So going forward in this episode, I will be referring to this nation as the Netherlands. And just to be clear, they still speak Dutch. (laughs) For a small country, smaller than the major powers of the time, Spain, France, England, by the 17th century, the middle of the 17th century, I should say, the Dutch, who were a republic by this point, had achieved an intense dominance over the world trade of wines and spirits across Europe and beyond. The trade of wine and spirits and spices and silk and a bunch of other stuff was greater than that of England, and England didn't like this at all. And at some point, they would get involved with the Navigation Acts of 1650, but that's a whole other history. And as far as Bordeaux is concerned, it was recorded by John Locke in 1678 that the Dutch conducted more trade through Bordeaux than England. I mean, just think about it. The Netherlands is connected to the Rhine River, one of the largest rivers in Central Europe, and it's also connected to all those tributaries. It's just, its reach from the North Sea is just immense. And the Dutch knew this. They had a seriously competent naval fleet trading and everything. But the problem was, at some point in the 16th century, actually 1556, the Spanish conquered this area but i'm getting ahead of myself the united east india dutch trading company would eventually be for two centuries the dominant trading company of the planet known in dutch as the voc and through this power they would influence the future of bordeaux tremendously in the 13th century the dutch entered into an alliance called the hanseatic league which was a league or an alliance made up of a bunch of sort of Northern German merchants from like 80 or so towns, this kind of loose group of trading Alliance thing had pretty much a monopoly over the Baltic and Scandinavian trade. And with the Alliance with the Dutch, the entire Hanseatic league, which now includes the Dutch had access to the Atlantic trade routes and that meant access to what were called, quote-unquote, the wine rivers. The Loire, Seine, Scheld, Moss, Rhine, Mosul, and Garonne. That's Bordeaux. So the Dutch, being part of this alliance, really started to enrich the country and its citizens. And these cities began to develop wealth or aristocracies or bourgeoisie in places like Ghent and Antwerp. And as is the case in noble societies throughout history, wine consumption was a mark of wealth. To the point where it's recorded that the noble houses spent more than a third of their expenditures on wine. To compare with that, the working folk, I guess they're the, the plebes, I don't know what we could call them the working man, if you will, is what they would say back in the day, would spend that much on bread alone. And most of this wealth was concentrated in Holland, what is today North and South Holland. And south of the South Holland province is a place called Zeeland. Yes, what New Zealand is named after. The Hollanders and the Zeelanders would be the people that had a very important role in the transportation of wines from Bordeaux and La Rochelle to England and all the way through to the Baltic Sea because of that alliance. So that in the first quarter of the 14th century, wine represented 31% of imports into England and about 25% into the low countries surrounding Holland and Zealand. That aristocracy we're talking about. And because of the Netherlands' position in this whole trading route, they actually gained most of the share of export of claret from Bordeaux. Claret meaning the red wines of Bordeaux it seems that white wine was coming from Lower in a place called Poitivin. Bordeaux had wine, but Bordeaux also had salt, a very important commodity back in the day. And Zeeland, its capital today is called Middleburg, and Middleburg was a major stopping and transforma- transportation, transformation transfer point for this trade. So what happened is, The Dutch are sitting real pretty here. You know, they have control over basically the Garonne and the the estuary. They actually, if you go up north from Bordeaux, there's La Rochelle. They have something going on there. Then you go north of Rochelle, you get into Zealand, you're at Middleburg. Middleburg is a way to get product into the Netherlands and then out through the Baltic Sea into Scandinavia. And especially at the end of the hundreds year war in 1453, when England loses Gascony, the Dutch secure the lion's share of direct trade coming out of Bordeaux. But it's in the 16th century that things get real with the Dutch. A couple very important things happen in the 16th century, and one of them is that the Hanseatic lead actually fractures. And the Dutch at this point are the major beneficiaries of that fracture net. Fracturedness? fracturedness. So now they control trade from Bordeaux all the way through the Netherlands going east into the Baltic Sea, into Scandinavia. They got it all. They have the Hanseatic League is them. Another big deal is they declare their independence from Spain. Now the Dutch are not aligned with the Hanseatic League. They have independence from Spain, and this is when their trading power begins to be realized. They do some pretty awesome things internally to help fund their country after war-torn years, 80 years of occupation by the Spanish and the Portuguese, and they end up building a fleet that is so big and so powerful and dominant that by the end of the 16th century, the Dutch fleet equaled that of the Spanish and Portuguese fleet combined. It even dwarfed the French and English fleets out there in the ocean. That, that, that just, that is nuts. And here we are at the point I was in the beginning of the episode where the Dutch basically control world trade for about a century or so and in 1682 it's documented that of the 224 ships which were loaded with wine in bordeaux they were dutch so the dutch had the bordeaux trade on lock full stop and as the dutch grew and colonized other places it's kind of a dark history but wine remained a significant part of the trade even as they were ramping up all different kinds of products from around the world and Wine, brandy, and I think even vinegar, which makes sense because wine, you know, vinegar, was about 40% of the Dutch imports from France. And this is in the middle of, about the middle of the 17th century. Although Claret was a major part of this trade route from Bordeaux, one thing was very clear up until the 17th century is wines didn't last very long on these long ship journeys. And because they were the dominant trading company at the time, If they asked you to do something in the wine industry to help them get the wine from A to B, you were going to do it. The Dutch were the first to introduce the Allumet Allendees, which means Holland candles, which are SO2 candles burned in barrels to kill bacteria. They also encouraged fortifying wine with brandy, port, Madeira, stuff like that. And because of these two things, especially the blending part, this is my theory, but... At the time, if Port and Madeira are being heavily traded in in these routes, these are big-bodied wines. They're not the clarets from Bordeaux that people knew in the past. And what's interesting is another contribution the Dutch had to the wine industry, especially Bordeaux, was that of blending. And they would actually blend wines from Portugal— or Kaur, into their wines to strengthen them. And this is, I think, an indication, this is like the first indication where the wines of Bordeaux begin to have a little more weight to them, and the days of the Claret are starting to wane. And it is right here, wine lovers, where we have a major turning point in Bordeaux's history. Actually, one of the most major turning points, uh, something that if it did not happen, who knows what would be going on today. The Dutch drain the May Dock marshes. I actually found a, f- a-, a drawing of people that lived in the May Dock before this draining happened. They would walk from A to B on reeds, literally stilts, because it, dra- it flooded so much in this marshy area. And as far as why the Dutch did this, there's a few things. I can't figure out which one's real, or maybe it's all of them. One was the Dutch wanted more agriculture. One was the Dutch needed more trade roads to get their products to their ships. And another one was a French literal federal or... Some sort of, not federal, but some sort of national thing where the French actually hired them to help do this because they saw the potential in it as well. Whatever it was in the 17th century, because the Dutch know how to do land reclamation, they did it in their own country. They did the same thing for the May and drew all the water out from the May creating more land predominantly made up of gravel. Now, viticulture had been spreading from Grave, which was a natural, like I said, the natural gravel, which you can listen to in the, in the initial Bordeaux episode of the season one. Viticulture was traveling towards the Atlantic, but it stopped at and around Bordeaux. As this happened, as viticulture developed around this area, it became very clear the connection between the the gravelly soil and the wine it produced was different. Something was changing in Bordeaux and no longer would they need to blend wines from somewhere else to strengthen their wines. Where before the most celebrated wine was in Graves, this is where Chateau Aubriant comes into play. The Medoc, even during its rye production and salt production days, it was surrounded by these feudal. Uh, they're called seigneuries or these these feudal mansions, if you will. Over time, these would become the great estates of the left bank of Bordeaux. This is also the time when the estates of Chateau Lafitte, Chateau La Tour, and Chateau Margaux become planted. And it's by 1760... That virtually all the vineyards of the Medoc were planted. So here we are. Bordeaux has been through a roller coaster ride of land grabbiness for so long. And now we're at a point where Bordeaux has risen and is developing a merchant class, its own bourgeoisie, and things start to get really intense. Bordeaux is now poised to become one of the most famous wine regions in the world from antiquity to royalty and wars and land grabbiness to trade the Dutch positioned perfectly on the planet to help bring trade throughout the world. Bordeaux being their focus, one of their major focuses takes advantage of all of this. And the English who for a long time were totally fine with claret and were kind of getting into madeira and port, they start seeing the change and they 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 love it. <laughs> They're like, "Okay, it does what? It ages?" Oh, And in the next episode, we're going to talk about that moment. The moment where everything basically solidified everything, the future of Bordeaux. It's fine wine. And fine wine in general and all that. The 1855 classification. But I just want to point out right here that you've been listening to Wine 101 for a while now. And every time we talk about history and wine... And Europe. Who always shows up? The monks. There are no monks here. This history is so unique. I love Bordeaux's history because it's not not about monks that had a bunch of time in their hands developing terroir and all this. This is about opportunity. And what's so interesting about that is the opportunity lends itself to absolutely stunning age-worthy wine that mesmerizes the world. Yes, terroir is part, sense of place, soil, microclimates, <laughs> natural science, yes, it's all part of it. But the, the beneficial location of Bordeaux and the, the fact that the wines are like the way they are now, it's just mind-blowing because it was not the work of Abbey's. I just find that fascinating. Anyway, next week, get ready for Napoleon Third. This dude was wild. See you next week. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. day. See you next week.